Welcome to the Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. And I'm Father Creighton McElveen. And today we're going to talk about um, the topic of baptismal identity. That's one of those buzzwords that gets thrown out, or buzz terms, I guess. It gets thrown out a lot, right? People talk about your baptismal identity or your identity in Christ. Um, and I think that it's a great concept, um, and it can be a very helpful term. It can also be a bit confusing. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things when when we don't define terms or things sort of enter the, the church's lexicon, you know. What does it mean? How does how does this apply? How do we interpret certain scriptural passages that relate to, you know, who we are in Christ? And how do we deal with what St. Paul has to say? It's all sort of a complex issue on the one hand, but it's also pretty simple on the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I think hopefully in today's episode, we'll be able to unpack it a little bit more so that people can see that it's actually straightforward. And, um, you know, we can look at it contextually, see what that really looks like. But yeah, I mean, people talk about it all the time. I mean, you can just take a look at Christian publications and you'll yeah. see something about baptismal identity on the gospel coalition or, or like wherever, you know, everyone wants to talk about it. Reformed, Catholic, Orthodox, whatever it is. Yeah, basically, as long as you believe baptism matters, you'll talk about baptismal identity in some way. Um like I would say uh, the phrase baptismal identity was not one that was super common when I was growing up because I grew up in mainly evangelical circles. So, you know, um, but it, but that idea of identity in Christ, your identity is in Christ, that was sort of the it meant basically the same thing as what we mean when we talk about baptismal identity, um, for sure. So I think one I think one starting point for the discussion is Galatians chapter three, verses 27 to 28. So St. Paul says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And I think what we wanted to do to start out this discussion is to talk about some ways that this can be maybe misinterpreted a little bit um, or, or applied poorly. And then we can talk a little bit about what it means in a positive sense. Um, How do we account for our identity in Christ? Um, And I think one trend in modern Christianity is to often think of the identity Christian as another identity alongside other identities. Um, So, for example, right, uh, I'm a father and I am a student. And I'm a husband, and I'm um, I like I was a Latin teacher, right? Um, not in that order in terms of importance, but those were facets of my identity. I'm also a Christian, but I'm not a Christian alongside those things. I'm a Christian first as the kind of organizing principle of who I am, and then that impacts how I'm all those other things. I am a father who is a Christian. I'm a husband who is a Christian. I'm a Latin teacher who is a Christian, right? Um, And so, whereas some of those identities trade off with each other, right? When you're a student and a husband, sometimes you have to say, I'm putting the books down so that I can do husband things. 
And sometimes you have to say, I'm just going to not do husband things today because I have to do student things today. But that is never the case with being a Christian. I'm doing all those things Christianly, or I should be doing all those things Christianly. Yeah, it's 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 one of those things that it's you know it's easy to fall into putting it next to other aspects of your identity, right? You know, it's it's easy to say compartmentalize parts of your life. Um, you know, definitely on Sundays I'm a Christian or whatever. Um, but the difference, I think, in some in some ways, right, as you said, with an organ, it's a sort of organizing principle, is that Christianity is a way of being. And so since it's a way of being, the other parts that make up our, you know, ourselves, those collections of experiences or interests, those fall under one's being. And so Christianity as a way of being, as a, as the way of being, incorporates and gives life to those other aspects of who we are, those other things that make us who we are. Mm. Um, and so if you want to see it, you know, the different metaphors, we can go into a bunch of them, right? Or uh, an umbrella and everything else is under the umbrella. That's sort of a outward sort of macro look. If you want to look at it as micro, cosm you can say that christianity is the is the the seed and everything else is sort of around it mm. or nucleus and everything else is orbiting around the nucleus um different ways to talk about the same idea that christianity is isn't a, a hobby or a an interest or a, a propensity or anything like that in the person's life um rather it's the the sort of or should be i guess the core of the person um and that gives meaning and expression to all those other things that that kind of go into making up that collection mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so sometimes you hear galatians three twenty eight read in a way that minimizes individual identities Right. So when Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, people will take that to mean that then their maleness or their femaleness are sort of incidental or that it doesn't matter um, where they're from. And, and there's a sense in which this is all true. Right. Because what St. Paul is talking about here is baptism. And he's talking to a church that's been divided, particularly along the lines of ethnicity. Right. Because you have these Judaizers who have come to the Galatians and said, look, great. You all want to be Christians. First, you have to become Jews. Get circumcised. Follow the dietary laws, observe all the Jewish feast days, and then you can be Christian because you're being Jewish. And St. Paul doesn't really appreciate this at all, uh, using quite strong language at times in the in the letter of Galatians. He's his argument is, no, you don't have to be Jewish to be Christian. Um, there are no external barriers to becoming Christian because the gospel is open to everyone, right? So his kind of genius inversion in Galatians 4 is really interesting where the Judaizers, he lists as descendants of Hagar and Christians, regardless of their ethnicity, Jew, Gentile, or whatever, are descendants of Sarah. Um, where, of course, the Judaizers would have viewed this the opposite. They were the true descendants of Abraham. But in Romans 9, St. Paul tells us not all 
Israel are biological descendants of Abraham. There's clearly um, something more going on here in terms of the of carrying on the Abrahamic promise than just an ethnic identity. Um, this does not mean ethnic identity doesn't matter in Paul's ministry or that one's sexual identity doesn't matter in Paul's ministry, right? I mean, read 1 Corinthians. There are clearly different roles that men and women occupy liturgically. In Ephesians 5, there are clearly different roles men and women occupy in a family setting, right? So he's not he's not saying these identities go away in baptism. He's saying they're not barriers to baptism. That's my read of it anyways. No, I mean, I think I think that's it. And you know, I think in a lot of cases when people look at this particular verse, um, Galatians 3:28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, etc., that part. They're doing um, I mean, it's effectively proof texting for a particular view. Uh, it's also uh, another term is eisegesis, right? It's taking mm -hmm. that particular verse in isolation and then drawing conclusions from it. And we don't want to do that when we read scripture and when we think theologically or even pastorally about these particular issues. We've got to take it in its context. And considering the fact that St. Paul when he does present the gospel, I mean, we really talk about St. Paul as the first theologian. He's providing this sort of dogmatic explanation uh, of the faith. So he starts with first principles, right? He says, well, you have to be baptized. And baptism is not strictly reserved for a particular group of people uh, because the church is not strictly reserved for a certain group of people. And so the entry point to the church, as he explains in this passage in Galatians, is baptism. So if everybody's welcome, everybody's baptized, then the ethnic distinctions or the distinctions of male and female or the distinctions of old or young or any of the other distinctions that we want to make, those don't matter in the, you know, whether or not the font is open to you. Right. Which is which narratively is demonstrated in the book of Acts in a number of places. I mean, you can think of the those sort of concentric circles that make up the outline of the book. I mean, the gospel starts in Jerusalem. It goes out to Judea, it goes into Samaria, and then it goes into all the world to the point that we get an Ethiopian eunuch. What what's preventing me from being baptized? He asks. And of course, there's nothing. And so the baptism, they pull the, the chariot over and he's baptized right there. And, and really what St. Paul is saying in Galatians 3.28, I think is a kind of summation of the Council of Jerusalem also in Acts, right? Which is, I mean, the church as a whole decides, yeah, you don't have to be Jewish to be a Christian. Um, right. And so, but again, St. Paul doesn't seem to forbid Jewish people from being Jews. In fact, I mean, he would tell you he was, he was very observant of Torah, you know. Um, so, and also would make other people, I mean, you know, Timothy has to be circumcised so that he's not offensive to Jews when they're on mission. So there's an, a kind of accommodation to these identities as well. But um, but yeah, none, none of these prevent one from being baptized. Um, yeah, they're, which, not, they're not essential to that reality. Right. And, and, and as you mentioned, like in, in the three, in uh, chapter three, verse 29, you know, it follows up this, there's neither Jew nor Greek with, as you mentioned earlier, 
this statement that if if you are Christ's, if you have been baptized and brought into his body, then you are Abraham's offspring. Right. Right. Heirs according to the promise. And so it opens this whole life, this way of being, this incorporation into the body of Christ. It opens it up to everyone. And he's very clearly saying, if you're a Jew or a Gentile, if you're a woman or a man, you become an heir to this promise. You become a part of this life. Um, it does, you know, he doesn't say that you cease being a man or you right. cease being a woman or you cease being ethnically what you are. I don't think you only you only Phoenix. cease you only cease being a man if the circumcision goes wrong. <laughs> Whoops, just kidding. Um, moral joke, everyone. Um, but yeah, you, you know, the Ethiopian eunuch does not cease to be Ethiopian. Right. Um, or a eunuch. Or a eunuch, yeah. But he is brought into the body of Christ as a full member of the body of Christ, one who participates completely in the, in the life of the church. Mm. And ultimately, that's what St. Paul is getting to here. Yes. I once, uh, I'm reminded of a time I was teaching on, on a, um, one of the Paul's letters, and somebody made the comment that their understanding of the relationship between Jews and Gentiles is that it's like God has two children. And just like all of us, he maybe loves one of them a little bit more than the other. And I remember thinking that is so contrary to everything Paul talks about. <laughs> you know, it, it, that distinction doesn't matter. The Ethiopian is just as much uh, a member of God's family as, you know, St. Peter is or St. Paul is. Um, so, so yeah, so that's kind of where we're coming from then when it ta- when we're talking about Galatians 3. Paul is saying there are no barriers to baptism rooted in your identity. Um, elsewhere, you know, he'll 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 insert maybe some other features of identity. Um, I think it's interesting that he says Jew or Greek, slave or free, uh, male or female, um, when he's about to talk about the Hagar story. Um, because I think that's I did my thesis on that um, at Liberty, but I think that that story cuts across all those identity markers. God shows great grace to Hagar, who is woman, slave, non-Jew. Um, but I think what we want to do is maybe highlight some problems of reading 28 outside of its context where we begin to minimize features of the baptized person's identity in terms of understanding who they are, right? Because you often hear that, you know, your real identity is in Christ. Like I remember somebody telling me that um, that they thought AA was maybe not healthy because you have to say, I'm an alcoholic. Well, no, your identity is in Christ, this person was arguing. And I can understand where they're coming from. There's certainly a way to focus in on certain behaviors or patterns and and perhaps making that, you know, the totalizing part of who you are. That's not a great thing. But um, pastorally, it helps me to know who who's an alcoholic Christian, you know, um, or who's a Christian alcoholic, I guess we could say, right? In my in my parish, as far as how I would work with them, right? Right. Yeah. And there's there's a natural sort of impulse um amongst human beings uh to sort of categorize and minimize and so when we categorize people, like we want to make an in, in crowd and an out crowd, we want to make ins and outs, we want to separate off people um, 
buy features, whatever society or the culture you're in wants to make those distinctions, uh, Jew or Greek, mm. right? We, we want to solidify the boundary lines between those two ethnic groups or two individuals and say one is better than the other or I'm part of this group and so that group is not this group, therefore mm -hmm. I don't relate to them. And the other, the sort of flip side to that impulse is bleaching away differences amongst people and sort of saying, we're all the same, right? And that doesn't account for human experience in the fact that we are in fact not all the same. Yes, you and I are, are human beings, right? We have a shared common humanity and we share a lot of things in common. Interests, uh, age, upbringing. Well, you're a little older. I am a little older, but you know what I mean. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. <laughs> um, We're we both millennials. Right. We share, we share a lot of things in common, an outlook on life, you know, a, a shared priesthood, whatever. But we're not the same person. Right. And because we're not the same person, you know, we have these distinctions. And that makes up who I am. Those Some of those distinctions make up who you are. But that is not something that needs to be, you know, we don't need to just reduce those distinctions down to nothing so that they don't matter or they don't mean anything because ultimately that doesn't account for human experience. Right. That's a really dehumanizing thing to do is to bleach away distinctions and to say they don't matter. I remember... Uh at Liberty, uh, I guess this was while I was in seminary, they had Bernie Sanders come speak um, during his presidential campaign. And he made some point during a question and answer session about racism. And it was pretty broad point. I mean, I, it was not a controversial point, I don't think. Um, I think most people could hear it and say, yeah, he, he's probably right about that. Um, and then the the person who is doing the interview who worked for the school says, well, here, we don't believe that racism is a skin problem. It's a sin problem or something like that, you know, as if kind of minimizing the difference, you know, um, doing exactly, I think, what you said. And I remember just Sanders face was kind of like it just clearly did not compute <laughs> what this guy was trying to say. But I think that that is a good demonstration of kind of what we're talking about, this idea of trying to remove the distinction. Now. Obviously, much has been made about the distinction right between various races and 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 often in very horrific and, and horrible ways. But when we meet someone of a different race, I mean, that does inform who they are, you know, and that it, and it's not necessarily healthy to to try and remove that. Um, right. Their their experience of being from a particular country or of a particular ethnicity definitely colors who they are and their view of the world to right. say otherwise would just i think be uncharitable or silly right. um because that affects my view of the world that affects you know how i see other people and conceive of myself it's what makes you look at the dregs of beer battle a beer uh uh vats and say i should put that on some toast okay okay <laughs> there <laughs> I will not stand for shade being thrown uh, at Vegemite, and so I'm going to put my foot down. I should apologize to our Australian listeners. Uh, Dr. Scott Harrower, great uh, guest of the show. Uh, I remember the first time I ever interviewed him, I asked him, what is the deal with Vegemite? 
Well, I think it's definitely something you have to grow up with. Yes, we'll see. You know, it's it's see? an acquired taste. Mm -hmm. And I think if you haven't grown up with Vegemite, it's very assaulting to your taste buds because it's so salty, it's earthy, bitter, like those sorts of things. Um, so you definitely have to grow up with it. And if you grew up with it, then you know uh, it keeps your cheeks rosy and healthy, uh, full of vitamins and deliciousness. It's great on crackers with cheese. It's good on anything. Mm -hmm. By the spoonful. All right. Well, I think we'll save the debate about Vegemite, the merits of Vegemite some other time. But um, when we talk about this removing of distinctions in ways that are unhelpful, what this is in, in many ways is, is a kind of over-realized eschatology, right? Um, we have this view of, of the kingdom often. Um, where there aren't separations, though, even in the kingdom, I mean, the idea of the nations is very prevalent in that. But but there's still this kind of idea of 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 a of a greater unity. Um, certainly, when it comes to um, to people who have certain struggles, like someone who's an alcoholic, you know, they might um, look forward to a time where that's not something that they have to contend with and struggle with on a daily basis. Um, but what we're told is that the church militant is struggling. I mean, that's why we call it the church militant. Um, and so I think it puts us in a bad place when we kind of treat church militant, church triumphant as kind of uh, replaceable, you know, where where we substitute these in. Um, you know, Hugh of St. Victor, who everybody knows is one of my favorites, talks about why there's the fracture and why the one piece is put in the chalice from the host. And he says, because the other two parts of the priest host represent the church militant and or the church triumphant and the head of the church but the church militant is put in the chalice because they are currently suffering so just like the lord received the chalice during his earthly ministry we are in that passion now one day we won't be but we are now and i think sometimes this this kind of um eagerness to remove the distinctions comes from a a good place of wanting of longing for the kingdom but at the same time we have to be realistic about where we are and also realize the kingdom's not here yet in its full form and so as members of the church militant we still have to fight you still have to struggle with facets of your identity um you know race will continue to be a complication uh addiction will continue to be a complication and you know god gives us grace to work through those things but there's still things we have to work through yeah and 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 it just has to it has to be that way um because you know we we have not reached the completion the the eschaton right um and so we live in the world and as human beings who live in the world we have to interact with people around us and ourselves. <clears throat> and this is why, before we started talking, you know, one of the, the points that I was making when we were prepping for the episode is just the fact that Christianity is ultimately humanizing. And, you know, just to unpack that a little bit more, um, Christianity is, as the organizing principle, is that nucleus, is that um, way of being, allows us to live and to live fully 
to live completely. Um, and so because of that, because it is uh, this way of being that allows us to live fully complete human lives, uh, we have to address these issues. We have to address the fact that we are still progressing and still struggling and still still moving. Um, and, and even the facets and aspects of our lives that are not a struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, right? Like the objective truth that Vegemite is delicious. That's not a struggle for me. It might be for you. <laughs> <laughs> But it's not something that is a struggle, right? I just I enjoy that food or I, I enjoy this hobby or I like to read or, or what have you. And so the whole human, the whole person is taken into account when we don't bleach away the distinctions and when we don't sort of entrench ourselves behind certain distinctions. Right. Um, entrenching ourselves behind certain distinctions makes those distinctions equal with the organizing principle, which is Christianity. Mm-hmm. And so when we do that, we are now competing, right? Right. My distinctive here is competing with this other distinctive, which is being Christian. Um, and so that, that has a whole series of its own problems that Christianity is not competing with other aspects of you, who you are, uh, but rather, vivifying and enlivening and bringing them into fullness the same is true when we just bleach away the distinctions we're not living into a a a real human life right we're not we're not living into that fully alive uh humanity that we're called to live in so both poles really mess with how we understand the christian life and how we understand uh what we could call baptismal identity um, we don't want to go either po- towards either end. And when we talk about this element of humanizing, I think it's really important to to remember that you know we're never human alone. We're always human with others. And so this this does condition then how we love, not just how we understand ourselves. And I mean, Martin Buber would say, and I am now that that you know how we love and who we are are very related things, right? How I love shapes who I am. Um, and so, so I, like I've been reading works of love. I mentioned that as what I'm, what I was into an episode or two ago um, by Soren Kierkegaard. And he says, you know, the, the, the summary of the law is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, love is a duty. It's a duty. And who's that duty towards your neighbor? No distinction made there, right? Uh, clearly uh, the scriptures mean neighbor is, is everyone. Um, and so, he says, it may be that at first we have to love with our eyes closed. But he says, love is not blind, right? When we love with our eyes closed, it's because exactly what you're saying, where we're putting one facet of our identity in competition with the ultimate principle, right? I can't love X, right? Because of, because I'm Y. You know, I can't love, I can't love Vegemite because I'm American, you know? Um, so I have to eat it with my eyes closed and, and you know, just kind of do it, even though I, I don't maybe like it at first. Right. But he says the goal is not to stay blind. The opposite. Right. The goal of loving another is to be able to love them as themselves. 
So it's a love that sees people for who they are, right? So I don't have to pretend that so-and-so is not an alcoholic in order to love them. The opposite, right? I love them and I understand who they are, what struggles shape who they are, all those kind of things. And I love them without caveat. Yeah, I, a book that I really enjoy, it's actually back on the bookshelf. Um, old copy of it by Anders Nygren, Agape yes. and Eros. Um, is it perfect? No. Is it really interesting? Yes. Um, and it's sort of a systematic study on on love and, yeah. and what that really means. Um, and I think one of the interesting things that, that Anders Nygren says about divine love, which is the love that the Christian is always called to, is that divine love is unconditional, mm. right? So the love itself is not conditioned on what it receives or the fact that you look this way or sound this way or whatever. So the love is unmotivated, unconditional. But he also talks about how it's uncompromising in its ability to love. And so it, like you said, with, um, you know, Kierkegaard's, you might have to start by kind of closing your eyes and just saying, I know I'm supposed to love, so I'm going to love. But if, if you are truly exercising divine love, if you are loving in this unmotivated, unconditional way, that leads you to see all of who the person is, right? It's, it's sort of an unflinching eyes wide open look at the person mm -hmm. and accounting for the distinctions and the variations and the realities of that person as a living, breathing human being. Mm -hmm. um, and even if there are differences between you and the person that you're loving, because it's unconditional, it's unmotivated, you still practice love. Right. Those distinctions are seen for what they are and they're, you know, the person is seen for who they are. Um, but the love, it isn't changed by what it sees. And I think that's a significant sort of point here, right? It's it's loving, but it's also fully seeing. Yes. Yes. Right. Love is not a legal fiction in any sense. Right, right. Absolutely. And I think um, I think a lot of what we're saying, too, revolves around that great principle that grace doesn't destroy nature. It perfects nature. You know, so um, so a baptized person. Is a new creation, I mean, St. Paul uses this kind of language, but at the same time, they're still themselves. They're more themselves, perhaps after their baptism, we could even say. Right. Because sin, uh, you know, this is another term that gets used a lot uh, is that of a sin nature, which is not one I love. You know, it's 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 confusing because what we what that sounds like is that, you know, your sin nature is who you are. But as Christians, we say, no, that's not who you are. Um, and baptism helps us realize who it is that we are. More fully. And so if we try to downplay our manness or our womanness or, you know, any other feature of our identity, um, 
I think I think what we end up doing is we we buy into this idea that grace really does destroy who we are. But what this means, and 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 this has long been the the especially in the West, the way we articulate original sin, you know, yes, baptism removes original and actual sin, but the effects of concupiscence still kind of continue on. So for example, the person who's an alcoholic should not celebrate their baptism by going to the bar and drinking because they're a new person, you know, and that intuitively makes sense. We all understand that. Um, so similarly, you know, like we say, baptism reconfigures your identities, organizes them under the principle of being a Christian. But it doesn't get rid of all of your identities or any of your identities, really. Yeah, and and I think too, based on and I'm not I'm not trying to like get throw shade at, at a particular uh, group of Christians or not, but you know I I think one of the things that gets talked about in in some Reformed circles or even some Lutheran circles is this. You know, I, I don't think it's actually attributable to Luther, right? The snow-covered dunghill mm. analogy. I don't think he ever said that. Um, but certainly that, that principle gets used to understand what's going on, uh, where you're sort of rotten to the core, i.e. this kind of sin nature conversation, um, and God just sort of covers you up with what he wants to see. And again, that's not very humanizing. It doesn't really take into account the fact that we are human beings who God has redeemed um, and that the action of grace to perfect isn't really accounted for, right? That the, the grace, is, grace is either covering up something or destroying something. Neither of those really works because it's not like you've got this angry God the Father who's like, those horrible, sinful, nasty human beings. And then our Lord is standing in between us and the Father saying, don't look at them, look at me. Mm. Like they're nasty and gross. So don't look at them, look at me and everything will be fine. Right? That's such a, a messed up way of viewing A, the inner Trinitarian life, but also B, how we understand what baptism is doing and how it's accounting for who we are. And so, concupiscence is is that struggle we talked about earlier it's the fact that we do have a propensity to sin right we live in a fallen world and as human beings our will is weak it is wounded we have these wounds that only grace can heal and perfect and bring us into the fullness of life and so when christ calls us to himself, he's not saying, I don't want, I want you to all look exactly the same. Like you're, you're all robots and you know, you're all, you all look the same to me. You all act the same to me. He's saying, no, I'm going to call you Wesley Walker to become fully alive, fully vivified and realized. And I think our Lord and the angels all rejoice in that fact because they're seeing you or they're seeing me being me being you uh, as we were sort of meant to be as as god is training us to be right it's like a rocky montage like we have to struggle and do the work but it's for this purpose of being 
fully realized in Christ. Mm-hmm. And when, when St. Paul talks about, you know, being alive in Christ, Christ in me, Christ in you, you know, it's, it's you becoming Christ-like. It's not you becoming, you know, in, it, I don't know how to say it, but, you know, indistinguishable from another. Right. Um, the body of Christ, the the body of Christ is multifaceted with many members who have different roles and different, and you occupy the particular role in the body of Christ so that you're not interchangeable with, you know, so-and-so down the street. Right. Um, but rather together we are the church, you know, and, and so each part of the church is in some sense necessary. Um, I'm not necessary in an external sense to God, but, you know, right. necessary in terms of its um, kind of internal integrity. You know, right. um, you're a part of the body of Christ and you are that specific part is the point. Um, yeah. And it, it it's. I don't know. It's like a beautiful thing. I, 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 don't, I don't know about you, but, you know, I love doing baptisms. I think they're just yeah the bomb. Especially um, babies. Yeah. Anyone, though. Anyone. But babies are uh, cuter. That's true. Uh, but I've, I've had some really moving experiences baptizing in a, adults. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things where we really get to see this like loving principle at work that in the case of, a, of an infant, right, despite any of their work, despite any of their doing, despite anything at all, new life and grace is being poured into this mm-hmm. infant soul. Um, and, you know, hopefully through the promises made by parents and godparents, their whole life will be spent learning about and training in grace and holiness um, towards the end that God has for them. Yep. Um, and to me, to me, that's that's a beautiful thing because... It accounts for our frailty and it accounts for who we are. Um, And it shows me, at least from a personal experience standpoint, that that God actually loves me. Mm -hmm. Uh, It reminds me that God actually loves me and not just this general sense that like, well, God loves everyone. It's like, yeah, but no, he actually loves me because he's he was willing to to bring me into himself, to bring me into his life as me. Yep. And now there are expectations once you are brought into that life, right? If there's something about me that is, you know, contrary to the life of Christ, then the expectation is not that I'm going to continue to do that thing. Right. Right. So I don't get a free pass of being like, well, you're brought into the life of Christ. um, And that old habit or that old practice that you were, doing prior to being brought into the life of Christ. That's, that's cool. You keep doing it. It's like, no, no, you need to, you need to figure out what's causing that and then find how that can be realized in Christ. Right. Absolutely. Ellis Thornton, Anglo-Catholic 20th century friends with the L Maskell people who listen to the podcast will definitely know. We think very highly of El Maskell around here. Ellis Thornton, um, was a New Testament scholar and wrote a great book called The Common Life and the Body of Christ, which is kind of a really a survey of 
St. Paul's ecclesiology and soteriology. It's, it's masterfully done in many ways, I think anticipates a lot of Pauline scholarship that comes 30 to 40 years after Thornton. And one concept he introduces in that book that was really helpful for me in kind of working through some of these issues uh, was, is the idea of what he calls double polarity, double polarity. And so he says, you know, when you're baptized, you're brought into the church full stop. You know, you're a member of the church. You are a Christian. No question about it. That's an indelible mark. No one can take that away from you. But he also says that what has been promised to you in baptism is given to you in germ. Um, and so it's like a seed being planted in the soul. And that seed has to be tended. It has to be watered. Um, and that ultimate goal, which I think we've kind of been hinting at and um, and and talking about, at least indirectly, is is really deeply humanistic, at least in a Christian way. Right. It's to live a fully human life through the beauty of holiness. Um, and so so like, you know, what's expected of you? You know, we talk about ob Christian obligations and the idea of repenting and turning away from our sins and all these things. It's not just a sort of drab moralism that we're after. It's a it's it's becoming more human and realizing that when we sin, we're engaging in dehumanizing behavior, both to ourselves and to others because of that I vow feedback loop, you know, if I'm mean to you, I'm doing violence to my own soul. Um, Frederick Douglass talks about this when he talks about slavery, you know, that, that, that the worst people oppressed by slavery or the people oppressed by slavery, the worst were the slave masters um, because of what the, the violence it was doing to themselves. So <clears throat> that idea of double polarity then, you know, the, in, in, in one sense, the Christian life is there in its complete form, but it's in, in that germ and, and, through participation with grace, we we develop. And, and St. Paul uses this kind of organic imagery, you know, I mean, our Lord does too. There's the seed, the parable of the sower, you know, the seeds are planted and you have to water it. It has to be in the good soil or else they, they are malformed and eventually die. Um, St. Paul talks about, about the, the grafting into the body, um, which is, which is kind of a, an interesting process. I know there's some scholarly debate about how well Paul actually understood that process, um, I like to think Paul is smart enough, you know, to understand, but, but the idea of when you graft, you know, you can graft a younger branch onto a tree and eventually over time, it becomes in an organic sense, part of that tree. Right. Um, but it takes some time. It takes, um, work on the trees part, you know, the, the kind of coming together, the unification, the binding. Um, so Maskell in, in Christ, the Christian, the church says that what God imputes he imparts and what maskell means is he he points to the creation story yes god there's a sense in which god speaks over us in baptism you know um sealed with the holy spirit marked as christ owned forever that's true but god also creates when he speaks he doesn't just give you a, a juridical pronouncement that's totally unconnected to the reality of who you are but rather that pronouncement at your baptism then infiltrates into your whole being. Just like, I mean, infusion is a term that gets used a lot, but I mean, you think about when you make tea and you have your tea infuser. And at, I mean, at first the tea is only in the infuser and then over time it spreads out until the whole, um, the whole uh, contents of the glass has changed. And so I think that is a really helpful way of envisioning the, the Christian life. It is a development of becoming 
who we are. Yeah, and I think the key word there is becoming, right? Yep. Um, that St. Paul will, in different places in his epistles, use the idea of metanoia, right? Of, of like changing and converting. And it's not a static one-time event, but an ongoing process. And as grace sort of works on the human soul, right? It, it's, it is like that tea, right? It, it diffuses, it softens, and it, in, and it incorporates, and it perfects. And so there's a, there's a sense in which, you know, I always tell people like, you know, well, you need to be participating in the sacramental life of the church because we need that infusion of grace, mm. right? Um, we need that germ watered and it is watered through the gift of grace. Mm -hmm. um, I'm reminded of a, uh, you, I have in certain points in the past criticized certain aspects of um, the manualist tradition and moral theology and, and theology in general. But that doesn't mean that they're not still full of good stuff, because they are. Um, and there is... Um, I don't remember exactly where this was, but I read it in seminary and it stuck with me. And it's this idea of, of how grace operates in the human soul. And so when we come, uh, there's this, you know, fountain of grace, right? And we come to this fountain of grace and initially, right, we, we sort of have to, you know, lap at the fountain with our mouth or cup it into our hands and drink from it that way. You can only carry so much in your hand, right? But as we keep coming back to the fountain, the vessel that holds the grace, that holds the water here, becomes bigger and bigger. So the next time we come back, you know, maybe we come back with a, a little cup, and then it becomes a bigger cup, and then it becomes a bowl, and then it becomes a jug, and then it becomes a barrel, and then it becomes, you know, bigger and bigger and bigger. And it increases our capacity to live fully alive. That grace multiplies in our life as we tend the seed, as we grow into who God wants us to be, as we become. Then our capacity to experience that reality, our capacity to live that life becomes greater and greater. Mm -hmm. And things like spiritual disciplines, like going to confession, they start hard, right? It's a difficult thing to begin sometimes. But over time, the human soul, as it's being worked on and perfected by God's grace, administered and given through that sacrament, it becomes better and better and better and better. It becomes more and more and more and more. We become used to the discipline then we begin to crave the discipline and we begin to you know live within the understanding that this is essential to my becoming mm -hmm. um, and the same with any of the sacraments you know those repeatable sacraments that we engage in it's the same thing um, and through prayer right we we gain a capacity to hear and a capacity to speak um, in that life 
And so I think I think it's really important that we that we don't become sort of transfixed, stuck in one place um, with with the idea of baptismal identity. That we really do see it as part of this process, uh, this organic growing, uh, so that we understand, like we said earlier, that that our distinctiveness and who we are is taken into account because we are learning and growing and who we are affects that process. Um, to yeah. use, to use some really pretentious terminology, I think that, uh, that the idea of double polarity here is really helpful because baptism in some way gives us a formal cause, right? It makes you a Christian, but it also is pushing you then towards the final cause of what that means. Um, and of course, um, I mean, for all of us, that's the beatific vision, but but how we get there, you know, your specific journey, given who you are in your circumstances, in your context, you know, it's going to look different than how someone else's journey will. And um, and so so because we have that formal cause, you are a Christian. It's always there as a catalyst, bringing us to the to the goal of beatific vision, the the ultimate end of 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 being a Christian that that full humanity that we experience in that glorified state well any uh any other thoughts comments concerns complaints on this topic complaints i don't know i always say that <laughs> i say that to my students i'm surprised they don't complain more often actually when i say that yeah you can't open that door <laughs> no i think I, I mean we could talk about this i think kind of on and on and on but I think that kind of at least puts within the context of the, you know, the, the, the context of Galatians, it kind of situates our starting verse where it needs to be. Mm -hmm. But I think it then also, you know, I think we uh, have hopefully, and our listeners can uh, continue to talk about it if they want on discord or any of the other places that they comment. Uh, down below on this YouTube video. And exactly. if you haven't subscribed to the YouTube channel, please do. We're going to we're gonna like, comment, and subscribe. Like, comment, um, and subscribe. But yeah, it, you know, this, this conversation can continue on in some specifics, but I, I think hopefully we've sort of been able to demonstrate what it means when we say baptismal identity and the fact that, um, you know, God really does actually care about who we are. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Um, and from a pastoral standpoint, that's one of the things that I constantly try to remember and try to practice is that God cares about me, but he cares about who you are and cares about the person that I interact with wherever it is, um, specifically that person. Yes. yes. Uh, all of their experiences and realities and proclivities and everything included. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not just someone I need to go say, have you heard about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Right. Again, that's bleaching away those distinctives and it's ultimately dehumanizing. Um, yes, we need to share the gospel. Yes, we need to present the gospel to people. Um, but I think if we do it in a way that is human and humanizing, um, then it will include building meaningful relationships that account for these things. And as Kierkegaard said, uh, loving these people with our eyes open. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right. It allows you the flexibility. Uh, there's a sort of pastoral flexibility here because you know you have to address the person in front of you as they are. You know, they're not going to be the perfect parishioner or the perfect Christian. Our job is to help them understand who they are in Christ, their baptismal identity, and what that means for them now moving forward. They have to live into that identity. Um, and that is that is the priestly that is a priestly job. I mean, that's why, you know, um, I mean, one of our one of our jobs, I think, flowing out of our our central responsibility of offering the sacrifice of the mass is to help each individual person under our cure kind of figure out, figure this out in their particular context. What does it mean in in the term in terms of your broken family, in the wake of your divorce, when you lose your job? Um, when the loved one dies, you know, all these kind of questions, what does that mean, um, to, to pursue this calling? How does Christianity organize that? Um, and that's tricky and it's hard. Sometimes we just need to have a ministry of presence. Sometimes it involves corporal acts of mercy, and sometimes it involves very clearly proclaiming the gospel, um, through words. So it just depends, but, but we have to have the kind of pastoral flexibility to, know where someone's at and meet them there. Well, I think that was a that was a good discussion but also a little bit heavy. So let's lighten things up a little bit. Father Creighton, what are you into these days? Yeah, uh I'm finally getting into the stack of books that I got for Christmas. Um cracking those open and starting reading. Uh so the the First of the stack that I have gotten into, and if you're watching the video, you can see the cover, is a book called Brisbane, mm. and it's by Eugene Vodoloskin, and um, I love Eugene Vodoloskin as a writer. Um, he wrote uh, another book called Loris that... Uh, I think Father Miles mentioned in a previous episode about one of his favorite books, and it's definitely one of my favorite books. Uh, I've read it probably four or five times now, uh, and I wrote a little review, sort of book review thing um, on Conciliar Post about it. But I am very excited um, to get into this particular book. I think it's going to be a little different than Loris um, from what I can see so far. Similar, obviously, same author, so style and kind of feel is going to be there, but um, different subject matter. I'm excited to see where it goes. Obviously, the Australian connection is fun, um, and there's you know different threads um, mm. about a musician, and yeah, it's uh, it's cool. I'll I'll, I'll give a, a a fuller maybe um, sort of plug for it once I finished the book. Um, but I really think that it's uh, so far living up to my expectations. And uh, it's probably going to be one of those books that I've, I've read like maybe two chapters now. And it, if I sit down with it, it's, I'll finish it yeah. in a sitting. It's like it's going to be one of those kind of books. Um, so, yeah, very excited about it. Um, I at, at this point would recommend it. I think I'll still recommend it when I'm done, but yeah, uh, it's really good. And 
I recommend Loris too. If anybody hasn't read it, um, you should definitely pick it up. It's fascinating. Forgive me, Father. I have sinned. I've not read Loris. You really need to. You I really know. Need to. I know. I need to. Um, so for me, uh, a, also a book and one that I know you're a fan of. Um, people know I do a, a, a kind of second uh, podcast called Classical Mind. Um, where we, it's really less theological. I mean, it's, everything's theological, but you know, it's less explicitly theological. It's more about the classic books and the great books that have formed the Western canon. Um, and uh, and so our next discussion is on Beowulf. And so I'm reading, rereading Beowulf. This is probably, I would venture to guess I've read it five or six times before, but every time you read a great book, what makes it a great book is that you find new things in it each read through, you know? And um, I've really enjoyed, I think in the past when I've read it, it's usually been for either to um, as a student or as a teacher. Mm. Um, Whereas uh, right now I'm reading it. I mean, for the podcast, yes, but also for fun. Um, And so like one thing I've gotten really interested in this read through are all the side stories. Because there are these kind of random, you know, he like talks about the swimming competition he does with Brecca, his friend, you know, and it's like, that's really cool uh, that they're out there for like a week swimming, <laughs> right? Swimming. Um, and uh, and just all that, all that kind of stuff, you know, there are all these extra kind of side stories um, that really add a texture to the novel or to the to the poem. And so, yeah. So anyway, so I've really been enjoying that. It's it's such a good uh, it's such a good work. I'm a little. Uh, disappointed that there have not been there's not been much by way of good film adaptations of Beowulf that is a hundred percent the truth like we can do Lord of the Rings well we can't do this poem well I just don't understand I mean it's like it's dying to be made the CGI one left so much to be desired that's what I was I've never seen it but I I kind of don't want to i might watch it when i finish the book just to just to see but um there there are some parts of it where you're like oh that was cool obviously the spectacle is interesting um there's also uh another film adaptation i don't know if you've seen it beowulf and grendel and it's got jared butler in it i've heard that was probably one of the better uh adaptations that and uh the 13th warrior i think is another one that was made that i've heard is okay with antonio banderas and yeah yeah Uh, playing playing an arab in scandinavia right um yeah so can i can i be a nerd for a second please well not that i'm not always a nerd if people have made it this far they're okay with a little nerdiness what translation are you using? Seamus Haney. Yes. Okay. I'm using the bilingual edition, actually, with the old English on one page and the English, modern English in another. But I, of course, I don't, I know you know some old English, but I do not know any of it. But I think it's cool to have the text there and to be able to see what words are being used. I know there's a lot of scholarly debate about some words, like like exactly what Grendel's mother is, uh, is kind of ambiguous in the old English, it seems like, and all that kind of stuff. That is definitely true. And I, I personally, again, because of studying Old English, like I prefer a bilingual version. Not that I haven't read it in both, you know, so, but I, I always like to see where the translator has gone yep. directly from the text itself. Uh, because sometimes there are deviations and it actually serves the the narrative and kind of makes the point a little bit 
better. Oh yeah. Um, and that's one of the things that I appreciate about Seamus uh, Haney is the fact that he's a poet. Um, and his translation has, I think in my opinion, done a good service to the text. Um, it's, it's sort of updated where it needs to be, but it retains a sort of poetic feel, um, and a sort of, um, a connection to the fact that while we sit here and read Beowulf, it was intended and, and understood for the vast majority of its history in a spoken sort of yep. oral context. And I think his translation sort of retains that it's it's actually kind of amazing um start just like pick up where you are and read it out loud yeah i have read parts of it out loud and you're exactly right it it's it it reads as it was meant to be read out loud yeah and th yeah. there are some translations which don't right right and and to me those are the worst kinds of translations because they obscure kind of the the heart of the fact that this was a um this was an oral epic poem yep um and you know i want to feel like i am in a mead hall that's right in in you know a cold windswept craggy outcrop outcropping mm -hmm. with rain beating down and you know ale in my cup the uh, there's a there's a cinematic quality to Haney's translation that I think is is fantastic. The part that stuck out to me this read through is when they go um, so that Beowulf can confront Grendel's mother to the mirror where mm. she uh, you know her cave is underwater, and when they arrive and they like find the head of the of the one Dane or is it a Geet? I forget which one, but you know um, they find the head of the the person that she had killed. And there's like all this gore uh, bubbling up to the surface of the mirror and everything. It, it really plays like a horror film. I mean, you could see that scene play out, sure, in in a cinematic way, which sure. is why it's a gosh darn shame nobody has made a good version of this of this into a movie. <laughs> so anyway, so yeah, Beowulf. Oh, that's what I'm into. Well. Uh, listeners, thank you so much for uh, listening to us, for supporting us. Um, we really do appreciate it. Please, um, like we said, like, subscribe, rate, review, all of that um, to us wherever you're listening and or watching. Um, and of course, as always, you can join the Patreon, communion of Patreon saints. There is no barrier. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek, male or female, rich or poor. You're welcome in the communion of Patreon saints. Um, so you can do that at Patreon. Father Creighton, would you give us a, a blessing? Absolutely. The peace of God, which passeth all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen.